What's up, Ninja Nerds? Today we're going to be talking about metabolic acidosis. This is part five of five on our series of acid-based disorders, so let's get right into it. Before we get started, I need you guys to go to their website, ninjanerd.org. you got to check it out. Become a member, download our notes and illustrations, and follow along. Without further ado, Zach, lead us off. Metabolic acidosis, what is it and what are some common causes? Yeah, so metabolic acidosis is basically going to be a condition in which there is a increase in the number of protons within the bloodstream. That'll definitely you know, drop that pH pretty good. The other thing is there could be a significant drop in the bicarb. So there's less base and that's going to also drop the pH of the blood and again, cause this acidosis or acidemia within the blood. Whenever the pH drops to less than 7.35, we now have that acidemia. And then the process which led to that again is the acidosis. The question is, is what's leading to this acidosis? Now, when we talk about this, there's two different types that we're actually going to go over. One is called the anion gap metabolic acidosis, sometimes just also referred to as AGMAs. And those are going to be very important. And if you guys remember from our first actual like series, our first particular podcast on the acid-based disorders and ABG interpretation, we said we can calculate an anion gap from our ABG. And basically that takes, you can use the sodium, you can subtract the chloride and subtract the bicarb. So you're using the ABG and the BMP actually. And what you do is when you take sodium minus the bicarb minus the chloride, you obtain an anion gap. Whenever the anion gap is greater than 12, that is your anion gap metabolic acidosis or the agmas, if you will. So the question is, is what are those? There's actually a relatively easy mnemonic. There's a bunch of mnemonics out there. The classic one is mud piles. And just to hit you with that one, just because it's the most classically utilized one, it's M is for methanol poisoning, U for uremia, D for diabetic ketoacidosis, P for propylene glycol, I for isoniazid, L for lactic acidosis, E for ethylene glycol, and S for salicylates. Again, that mnemonic is mud piles. I'm not a big fan of that one. I actually like to keep things a little bit more simpler, Rob. I like to use the one cult. So Please K do. <laughs> yeah. So cult for K-U-L-T. So again, this is the ketoacidosis, uremic acidosis, lactic acidosis, and then T is for the toxins. And that's just going to be a way easier one, I think, to remember. Plus, it covers the most common ones. A lot of the toxins here are the ones that are actually mentioned in the mud piles mnemonic, which aren't super common. So those are the big things for the anion gap metabolic acidosis. When we go into the pathophysiology of how these things actually cause it, though, is relatively important. So methanol, for example, and the methanol poisoning, basically it gets broken down in the body into something called formic acid, and formic acid just gives off a proton. That proton in the bloodstream, again, will drop your pH, and that, that's one of the effects. Uremia in patients who have like end-stage renal disease or a severe acute kidney injury, what happens is you're not able to excrete particular molecules out of your kidneys and into the urine, things like sulfuric acid. Acid, phosphoric acid, uric acid. And what happens is those acids build up in the blood and they give off protons and again, drop your pH. Another one is diabetic ketoacidosis. And again, we're just going down that mud piles thing here. Uh, DKA. So in this situation, you have diabetic ketoacidosis. There's a heavy amount of beta oxidation of lipids. So what happens is in patients who have DKA, they're likely a type one diabetic and they're in this situation where they don't have enough insulin to be able to push glucose into the cells to utilize that. And so they start breaking down lipids. So they do tons of beta oxidation of these lipids and they make a lot of these things called acetyl-CoA. They get shunted into the Krebs cycle. You make a lot of these things called ketone bodies like beta hydroxybutyrate and acetoacetate. And these things get flung into the blood and whenever they get into the blood, that beta hydroxybutyrate, uh, it starts actually releasing particular types of molecules like protons into the bloodstream. And again, that drops your pH. The other one, which is like your propylene glycol, your isoniazid and your salicylates. These are interesting because they work particularly at like the mitochondria level and increase, increase your lactic acid production. And so if you increase lactic acid production, you actually are going to have more lactic acid that gives off protons and then drops your pH. 
But then the last thing to think about here uh, going into this is the lactic acidosis itself. So when somebody has a lactic acidosis, this is pretty interesting. Um, there's two types of lactic acidosis, and this is probably like the most important one out of all of the agmas or the anion gap metabolic acidosis. So I'd say the big ones, again, if you remember cult is ketoacidosis, uremic acidosis, and then L for lactic acidosis. T is for all those toxins. So again, that goes the methanol, the isoniazid, the propylene glycol, the ethylene glycol, the salicylates. But with lactic acidosis being the most important one, there's two types. There is a type A lactic acidosis. And you can remember this one as though there's a significant oxygen impairment. So whenever there's not enough oxygen within a tissue, you aren't able to uh, convert a particular molecule called pyruvate into acetyl-CoA. And so what happens is pyruvate gets shunted into making these lactate molecules. And that's one of the particular issues here. So you have to think about what could cause the oxygen levels within the environment, within our blood, within our cells to not be high enough or not utilized in a particular way that we can't actually convert pyruvate into acetyl-CoA and instead we shunt it into making lactate. So think about ways that we would have low oxygen levels in the blood from the lungs. So the lungs are responsible for oxygenating our blood. What if there's a lung issue? So you have some type of like decreased ventilation where you're not able to oxygenate the blood. So pneumonia, ARDS, significant pulmonary edema, or you have a, you know, maybe you're able to ventilate the alveoli, but you can't perfuse the alveoli to pick up the oxygen. And so you have a big fat pulmonary embolism. Those would be particular things. The next thing is what if you don't have a, what if you have a good lung and you're ventilating those lungs and oxygenating the blood, but you don't have the adequate amount of red blood cells to pick up the oxygen. So you have severe, severe anemia. That would be one reason. Or what if you have good lungs, so you're ventilating and oxygenating the blood, you have good red blood cells, so you're picking up enough oxygen, but the amount of volume that is inside of your bloodstream isn't enough to effectively distribute that actual oxygen to your tissues. So what's called a decreased effective arterial volume. And so that could be due to a couple different things. One is hypovolemia. And so someone is ex extremely volume down, they're dehydrated, they've been vomiting, they've been peeing out their butthole, whatever, or they're losing blood for some particular reason, Rob. And in these situations, they're just super volume down and they're not perfusing those organs. So if we give them volume, that may improve. The other thing is that their heart is sucks and they're not pumping blood out of their heart. And so there's not enough volume in the circulatory system because their heart isn't able to pump that blood out. And so it's getting congested within the heart, like cardiogenic shock. Stanley, your heart sucks. <laughs> yeah, Stanley, your heart sucks. <laughs> <laughs> That's that office reference, people. All right. The next one is obstructive shock. So this would be a situation where your heart is actually pumping, but there's something that's causing a significant obstruction of blood getting out of the heart. Um, you know, things like cardiac tamponade or things like a tension pneumothorax or a big fat PE. The other thing would be septic shock, and this is probably one of the big ones as well. When a patient's super, super septic, their heart may be pumping like crazy. They may be tachycardic, but what happens is their vessels get so vasodilated that you just significantly like increase the permeability and just fluid third spaces rob like crazy out of these vessels. And so you have, you know technically you lose volume because it's third spacing into the intercellular fluid, um, and and that's actually going to be a problematic issue because it lowers the amount of total volume in the blood, and then again decreases the perfusion to the tissue. So again, to recap those, it's hypovolemia, cardiogenic shock obstructive shock and septic shock. These would be the ones that decrease your effective arterial volume. So that would be the type A. The next one is the type B lactic acidosis. So these has nothing to do with the oxygen impairment. There's you know no issue being able to deliver, no, no problem being able to oxygenate the blood, no problem being able to pick up oxygen with your red blood cells, no problem with being able to deliver the oxygen to the tissues because you have good pressure, good volume, good, good actual tone of the vessels. 
In this situation, there is an increased production of lactic acid or a decreased clearance of lactic acid. And so those things, you have to remember this, is the two organs that are primarily responsible for clearing lactate from our body is our liver and kidney. Liver first, kidney later. If the liver fails, you can't clear lactate. If the kidney fails, you also have a difficulty clearing lactate and that'll cause it to bump up. The other things is going to be a lot of things that increases the production of lactic acid. And again, this is, again, not due to an oxygenation problem. These are like medications that like alter the metabolism of acetyl-CoA at the electron transport chain area. And so this would be like things like, believe it or not, thymine deficiency, like in beriberi, metformin. So metformin-associated lactic acidosis is a huge one. Propofol, whenever people are on high doses of propofol, they can develop what's called propofol-related infusion syndrome. That's a big one. The less common ones I would, you know, go ahead and take in consideration, propylene glycol, linazolid, which is used to treat, you know, treat MRSA, salicylate overdose, and any kind of like HIV medication like the, you know, nucleoside reverse transcriptase inhibitors. The other one, which I definitely think is actually really worth remembering, Rob, is any increase in like glycolytic flux. So basically, you get a lot of glucose into the cells and you're just chewing through that glucose and making so much acetyl-CoA. But what happens is you actually shunt a lot of that into forming lactate. And this happens a lot with seizures or patients who are like overexerting themselves. So those are big things to remember. So for the type B, I would remember you can't clear it, the liver, kidney, you are generating too much of it because of metabolism issue at the mitochondria level. So think about thymine deficiencies, metformin, propofol, linazolid, and then you're having a lot of flux. So a lot of glycolysis that's spilling over into the lactic acid pathway and things like seizures, or again, some type of exercise overexertion. So that covers your agmas. Now, we go into the next category here, which is your NAGMAs, my friends. So this is the non-anion gap metabolic acidosis. So the anion gap is less than 12. So remember, you take the sodium minus the bicarb minus the chloride. If it's less than 12, and again, it was a metabolic acidosis, meaning the pH is low, and the bicarb in this situation is also low, that's a metabolic acidosis. You check the anion gap, it's less than 12, it's a NAGMA. Now, what are the causes of NAGMA? Hard up. (laughs) <laughs> I know it sounds super weird, but that is the mnemonic to remember. Hard up stands for H, hyperchloremia or hyperalimentation, meaning that you're getting like TPN, total parenteral nutrition, A for acetazolamide, R for renal tubular acidosis, which are super uncommon, but something to think about. D for diarrhea, so you're spewing out your butthole. U, ureteral diversion, so you have some type of ureteral diversion from the ureter to maybe some other comp- component, maybe to the actual GI tract or a pancreatic fistula. And again, the mnemonic is hard up. So how can we kind of understand the pathophysiology of this, Rob? So basically hyperalimentation or hyperchloremia, this is two ways. So sometimes if people are getting like total parenteral nutrition, so they're getting food via their IV, that can get a lot of chloride in it. And heavy amounts of chloride actually drops your bicarb in the blood. If you drop your bicarb, you lose your base. And so that actually causes the pH to drop. The other thing is whenever we do this to our patients, unfortunately, we give them the nasty, you know, fluid that being normal saline, I think normal saline is good in certain circumstances, but whenever there's too much of it, it becomes a problematic thing. Lots of that normal saline infusion, you get tons of chloride in it, like 154 milliequivalents within one bag of that. So what happens is you drive their chloride up, that drops their bicarb, they have less base, less base means that they're going to have more of the acid, and that's going to drop the pH. 
The other thing that you can get this with is hypertonic saline infusion. So you put someone like 3% hypertonic saline or you're giving them 8.4% sodium bicarb or you're giving them like a big amp of 23.4% hypertonic saline. Either way, lots of chloride drops your bicarb. And you see that with TPN and with the saline infusions. The other thing is acetazolamide. So that's for the next one. Acetazolamide is also known as Dimox. This is basically a drug. It's a carbonic antihydrase inhibitor. And what it does is it helps to be able to excrete bicarb in the pee. And so if you pee out bicarb, you drop the amount of base within the blood. And again, that makes the blood more acidic, dropping the pH. All right, so the next one I wanna talk about kind of briefly here is your renal tubular acidosis. So renal tubular acidosis is an interesting one. So there's uh, type one, type two, and type four. Within this type one and type two, there's some kind of issue here where, you know, the, the ultimate thing that's happening here is that you're somehow either uh, increasing the amount of protons within inside of the bloodstream, or you're actually trying to decrease the amount of bicarb within the bloodstream, either way. And that's causing an alkalosis. In both of these situations, you're also dumping potassium into the urine. And so because you're dumping potassium into the urine with both of these, uh, you generally can develop what's called hypokalemia in these types of situations as well. So that's something to definitely think about with these two categories. The type four is actually due to an issue where there is decreased number of aldosterone molecules within the bloodstream. So if someone has some type of issue where their adrenal gland is failing, they're not actually producing aldosterone, that actually will be a problem. Why? Because aldosterone works to be able to stimulate those proton potassium pumps so that you actually excrete protons into the urine and then reabsorb bicarb. But if you're not making aldosterone, then you're not excreting protons and you're not actually reabsorbing bicarb. So you don't actually reabsorb bicarb that lowers the bicarb in the blood and then you don't excrete protons. And so you retain protons in the bloodstream. And then again, because of that, that drops the pH within the bloodstream. And so that's a big thing to remember. But also think about this. Aldosterone works to be able to increase sodium reabsorption and potassium excretion. If you have less aldosterone, you have less sodium reabsorption and less of the potassium to be excreted. So the potassium levels within the blood rise. And so that's one of the big things to actually think about that with the, the type one, type two versus type four. So type one and two, they'll both have a low potassium. And then in type four, that will have a high potassium. The ways that you kind of further differentiate these is you can get urine electrolytes and actually check the urine bicarb. And the urine bicarb is actually going to be one of the big things that you can actually see as a difference between these two. But we're not going to go down that rabbit hole. The next thing is the ureteral diversion. So patients who have like bladder cancer um, that they had to like remove the bladder, they actually have to divert the ureter. So they divert it to the sigmoid colon. And if you think about that, at least a lot of chloride that's actually present within your gut lumen. Um, and then a lot of chloride gets absorbed across the gut. And then because of that, if you have a lot of chloride being absorbed across the gut, you have a lot of bicarb that is being excreted. And whenever a lot of bicarb gets excreted into the gut, that actually drops the bicarb within the blood. And then again, you have less base in the blood that'll drop the pH within the bloodstream. Wow, that's actually amazing. A urinal diversion. Yeah. They can actually divert it. So you're no longer yep. you're no longer going number one the same way. Nope. <laughs> it's true. It really is amazing though when you think yeah, about it. Like it really is. It, yeah. That's crazy. Wow. Yeah. Another thing to think about here is a pancreatic fistula and diarrhea. So patients who have like a pancreatic fistula, again, remember the pancreas is responsible for making large amounts of bicarb. And so because of they have a fistula that connects your uh, pancreas right to your GI tract, you're dumping a lot of that actual bicarb right into their GI tract to get pooped out. And so again, you're dropping the bicarb within their actual bloodstream because you're not going to be absorbing it. The other thing is if you have diarrhea, you're not allowing for any time for the bicarb to get reabsorbed. It's just funneling out and then you're painting the town brown, you're restocking the lake 
pig with brown trout. You're <laughs> dropping down the brown pickle, you know, all of those things. And so you're not getting enough time for the bicarb to be reabsorbed. And so because of that, the bicarb gets lost into the actual poop. And then again, you have less bicarb in the blood. And again, that'll drop your pH within the blood. That was a lot of stuff, Rob. That I felt like that was a lot. Maybe. I feel like I talked forever, man. Do you need a break? Do you want to get like a, <laughs> some water? Yeah, some I, I think I need like a normal saline infusion right now. <laughs> oh, man. My gosh. That, that, that is a lot, guys. And I hope I don't do Zach at the service here, but I'm going to cut that down hard. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I'm going to just remember the mnemonics because if you can remember – if you remember the mnemonics, you're going to at least know the general causes between agma versus nagma. Well, you have to remember the first mnemonic we learned was mud piles for agma. But don't forget, Zach also uses that uh, different shortened mnemonic, cult, K-U-L-T, for agma. And then, of course, you can remember hard up for a nagma. So don't forget those. If you can at least get a mnemonic, you have an idea of of where to go at least. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. Because then after you get the uh, the mnemonic down in your head, you can go ahead and dive into each one of those components and then try to understand how they cause an agma or an agma. But yeah, Rob, I agree. Awesome. All right, great. So Zach, go ahead and take us through the clinical features. I know we're all dying to hear about it. <laughs> if you could break it down into systems for us, cardio, palm, renal, neuro, what are the what are the most common features that patients are going to present with? You got it, baby. I'll do anything for you. Okay, here we go. Cardio. <laughs> so big thing with any kind of like acidosis, and these are the big ones. I'm serious. These are the real, real big ones to be considering. When you walk into the patient's room and you see like their blood pressure is like 20 over dead, and you're no, wondering no. why, <laughs> you know, be considering acidosis on that differential. I'm not even kidding because what happens is with acidosis you have so many protons within the bloodstream that it reduces your contractility it actually causes an intense vasodilation of the systemic vessels and that can cause a significant drop in the mean arterial pressure but one of the big things is that if you have a patient on multiple like vasopressors and the pH is like super low, like less than like 7.15, pressors stop really working as, as well as they should. And so what happens is they start having to go up on pressors because the um, acidosis is just making it really difficult for those pressors to be able to work. So those are the things I think about. Pulmonary, if they're acidotic, their pH is super low, your lungs are going to try to compensate and you are going to be huffing and puffing and breathing at a super high rate because you're trying to blow off CO2, less CO2 in the blood, less carbonic acid, less protons and you rise up that pH. That's our compensatory mechanism. So they may be breathing, Rob, sometimes like 30 breaths per minute. That's crazy. Yeah. The other thing to think about here is like renal. Um, sometimes they can have a lot of electrolyte abnormalities. The big one to think about here is that potassium. So again, you get a lot of this situation where you have a lot of protons being shuttled into the cells and you're pushing potassium ions out of the cell as well. So you can get some hyper-K issues and that's kind of a scary thing. The other thing is insulin resistance. So sometimes insulin isn't working as well. And so you can actually see this kind of increase in blood glucose levels and it's causing hyperglycemia. The last thing is neurowise. This can cause patients to become uh, encephalopathic, where they become lethargic, obtunded, stuporous, and having some kind of altered mental status. Is the big things I'd be looking for in these patients. All right, let's get into the bread and butter here. Let's have some fun now. We want to take two patient case examples here, go through them, get an ABG on each of them, and figure out what's going on. You guys can probably already know that we're going to go into metabolic acidosis for both of them, but you have to be able to understand how, what these numbers mean and really how to understand uh, how to problem solve these issues. So patient number one, we get an ABG on this patient. He's a 12-year-old male who has a history of type 1 diabetes mellitus with small respirations breathing like Puff the Magic Dragon. <laughs> His pH... <laughs> that was good. I wasn't expecting that. <laughs> his, uh, in all seriousness, his, his, his pH is 7.21. His CO2 is 15. His O2 is 90. And his bicarb is 10. 
Zach, what do you make of that? What's going on here? Oh man, call it a day. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> oh no. So no, this is this is a classic case. So uh, with Kuzma's breathing, they're trying to compensate. So you have to figure out why they're breathing like Puff the Magic Dragon. <laughs> so they're breathing so fast, and there's a reason why. There's an acidosis that's driving it. Um, and so with this patient, they have a type one diabetes mellitus. I would go ahead and check that blood glucose levels, check those ketones, and you're probably going to find that they probably have a diabetic ketoacidosis going on. And that ketoacidosis is driving their breathing process to try to compensate. So if you think about this, go through it. pH 7.21, that's acidotic. Okay, so the arrow is going down. PCO2 is 15, arrow is going down. Remember, if it's CO2 and pH, they have to be going in the opposite direction to be a primary. So are these going in the opposite direction? By no means. So it can't be a primary respiratory problem. Go to the O2. They're actually satting appropriately. So 80 to 100 millimeters of mercury would be the normal PO2. And then bicarb is 10. Normal bicarb is 22 to 26. Oh my gosh, that thing is 10. It's super low. So the bicarb is going down and the pH is going down when they're going in the same direction. That is a primary metabolic disorder. In this case, it is a primary metabolic acidosis. But then again, think about the uh, CO2. They should be compensating. They're breathing super fast. Normal CO2 is 35 to 45. That's way lower. So they're breathing so fast to drop their CO2 so that they can try to compensate for that acidosis. If you drop your CO2, you're trying to drop your protons and try to make the pH a little bit higher. So they're definitely having a compensation, but it's not enough to be able to fully compensate to normalize their pH. So this is a primary metabolic acidosis with partial respiratory compensation secondary to diabetic ketoacidosis. Whew. All right. Yeah, baby. You done did it. We done did it. All right. <laughs> Patient number two, 74-year-old female with cardiogenic shock. She's on dobutamine and norepinephrine to maintain a MAP greater than 65 millimeters of mercury. You get her ABG, pH, 7.15. CO2 is 28. Her O2 is 78. And her bicarb is 8. Ooh, Zach, what's going on here? Yeah, so when you think about this one, uh, this one can kind of be a little tough. So you have a patient here again, looking at their history, they're in cardiogenic shock. So that takes me to thinking about, you know, a couple of different things. Should I be worried about uremia? Uh, it could be. They could have renal failure secondary to poor perfusion. I could check a BMP right away. Um, do I think they have diabetic ketoacidosis? Probably not. Do I think that they have some type of lactate bump? I think this is worthy of checking the lactate because sometimes in patients who have severe cardiogenic shock, we already know that can cause a type A lactic acidosis because we're not perfusing. We have a decreased effective arterial blood volume, not perfusing those particular organs, not giving them oxygen. And so we're shunting that pyruvate into lactate. So I would check a lactate on this patient. Now we also take a look here and see that their pH is 7.15. That's a down arrow, okay? So they're acidotic. Go to the PCO2, 28, almost 35 to 45. Is that going in the opposite direction in order to be a primary respiratory? It is not, it's going in the same direction. So that can't be a primary respiratory. O2, 78, okay, that's a little low. So they're definitely a little bit hypoxemic. And then bicarb, eight, oh my gosh. So normal bicarb is 22 to 26. So this is really, really low bicarb. Um, the lowest I've ever seen, Rob, is five. Can you believe that? Oof. Yeah, that was that was pretty scary. It's not a good day. Yeah, but in this situation, the concept here is if you have that bicarb, it's eight, it's really low. So it's going in the same direction. It's a down arrow going in the same direction as the pH. So since they are going in the same direction, it's a primary metabolic acidosis. Look at the CO2. Generally, when you compensate, you try to breathe fast to blow off your CO2. So did their CO2 go down? It did. Not a ton, but it did go down to 28 um, from 35 to 45 is the norm. So they have some partial compensation. Not enough, though, to normalize their pH because their pH is 7.15. So with this patient, I would check a lactate. Likely, it's going to be elevated. 
But that doesn't mean that I give this patient fluids because they have cardiogenic shock. They probably just need to be supported with depressors um, and some inotropic agents and then figure out what caused the cardiogenic shock. If it's an MI and they have a big old fat clot in one of the vessels, I probably have to send them to get a cath. Um, figuring out if there was something else that put them into this. If they're an AFib with RVR, maybe slowing down their heart rate a little bit or cardio burdening them. Again, figuring out the cause. Don't just blindly give these patients fluids um, to approach a, a blood pressure goal. And so I think that would kind of explain their issue here. What presser would you give them here? So I think I would continue on with like the dobutamine and norepinephrine being uh, that I have to have an idea here that if a patient has cardiogenic shock and it's likely causing them to be in a lactic acidosis kind of state because they're not perfusing as well, I would want to think, do can their heart actually take a little bit more squeeze? If they need a little bit more squeeze, then I think dobutamine or milrone is a good choice. Obviously, take into consideration their heart rate. If their heart rate's like 150, you don't put them on dobutamine. Um, so consider milrone. But that's one thing. And then norepinephrine, I think, is always a good drug to be able to give a little bit of squeeze because dobutamine can actually cause vasodilation and drop your pressure a little bit. So I would actually put them on norepinephrine just to give them a little bit of squeeze as well. But yeah, you can't go wrong with that. And then obviously big thing to think about here is that their bicarb is 7. I mean, their uh, pH is 7.15. So those pressors might not be working as well. You can try bicarb, but as you'll see later, there's actually no evidence to suggest that bicarb is good in patients with lactic acidosis, but you can try. All right, great. So really just trying to continue that treatment regimen and, and seeing what, what will really happen there. Exactly. All right. Yeah. All right, Zach, so you got the ABG, and we know how important an ABG is in this patient scenario, but is there any other tests, any other imaging that you may consider to diagnose metabolic acidosis? Yeah, so I think obviously thinking about, again, going back and figuring out why is this patient having, you know, well, first off, actually, I would say what kind of acidosis is it? So obviously figuring out if it's an AGMA or an AGMA. So you can get that off the ABG for the most part and the BMP. If you get an AGMA, go ahead and look for like that, you know, classic ones, the cult. So check ketones to rule out that there's, and check their glucose levels to make sure it's not a diabetic ketoacidosis. Check their BMP, looking for any bump in their urea, bump in their creatinine as the cause of like uremic acidosis. Check that lactate level to make sure it's not a lactic acidosis. And then if you really wanted to, to go down that rabbit hole of the toxins, you obviously do a good history, maybe do a tox screen, um, but you can check something called an osmolar gap. I'm going to be honest, Rob, I've never checked this before, um, but you can check a serum osmolar, uh, osmolar Clarity. And what you do is you get the, whatever theirs was on the lab value and then subtract it from whatever the normal one is. And it gives you this gap. And usually if that osmolar gap is greater than 10, there's concern for maybe some other toxins that are inside of the bloodstream. And so then I would go ahead and you know utilize that tox screen to guide me. Was it salicylates? Was it some type of propylene glycol or ethylene glycol or methanol, whatever. Um, but again, those are kind of things that you could think about within that AGMA territory. The thing with lactate though, is you have to figure out why. If they have a bump in their lactate, you got to figure out why they have a bump in their lactate. So go through all of those things that we talked about. Go through their medication list to make sure that there's not a medication like propofol or metformin or something of that nature that's potentially causing this. Make sure that you figure out, is it due to sepsis? So look into potential like you know urine uh, cultures, UA, blood cultures, chest x-ray, the whole thing, CT of the abdomen, make sure there's not a septic focus. Make sure that they're actually perfusing organs well. Check a CBC to make sure that they're not anemic. Get a chest x-ray of the lungs, a CT of the lungs, make sure that there's no kind of ventilation issue going on. Um, and maybe even check. Sometimes I think a big thing to check, Rob, and we miss a lot of the times is checking like a CT of the abdomen, make sure that they don't have like a, a, a dead gut, like a mesenteric ischemia, maybe like a CTA of the abdomen, but making sure that that's not an issue as well. But 
Yeah, a lot of things you can check there for Agma. Um, but then th- when you get down to the other one, the Nagma, Nagma is honestly, w- with these, we'll go into these a little bit more. But with these, you're really kind of just going through and looking at their medication list. So looking to see, are they getting a lot of normal saline infusions, getting any heavy like hypertonic saline infusions? Have they gotten Diamox or Acetazolamide re- recently? <laughs> you know, renotubular acidosis are relatively rare. If you want to go down that rabbit hole, you can actually check their potassium levels and check their urine osmolar gap and check their aldosterone levels if you really want to. Um, I think that's not a bad idea. But again, I would go down that list and just keep trying to figure out why they are the way that they are. Checking their renal function to make sure that they don't have like an end-stage renal disease. Um, I think these are a lot of the things that you can do. But oftentimes with the non-anion gap metabolic acidoses, it, it's relatively super obvious as to why these are happening. All right, guys. Home stretch here. We're almost there. I think we're all dying to know, Zach. What is the treatment for metabolic acidosis. Yeah, so treatment is relatively tough sometimes. So when you think about these treatment of, you can actually you know separate into two categories, agma and nagma. So when we're treating the agmas, again, think about those particular causes. So diabetic ketoacidosis is a big one, right? So obviously you have to treat the issue. It's likely that they're not having insulin. Maybe they haven't taken their insulin um, in some shape or form, and so you need to give them insulin. They're also going to be super dehydrated because whenever somebody has like this decrease in insulin, their glucose levels shoot up and it just creates an osmotic gradient that pulls water into their actual kidney tubules and they just pee out tons of fluid. And so they actually get pretty dehydrated. So giving them IV fluids and then also replacing any electrolytes, especially potassium and magnesium. If they're super uremic um, and patients are like in-stage renal disease, sometimes considering things like dialysis uh, intermittently um, or maybe continuous renal replacement therapy if they can't tolerate those excessive fluid shifts. If they're getting super acidotic from their uremia, you can also consider bicarb. This is actually one of the only scenarios where I truly think uh, bicarb could actually be beneficial in patients who have agmas. It's not super beneficial for lactic acidosis, diabetic ketoacidosis, but it is relatively effective for your uremic uh, acidosis patients. The next thing is lactic acidosis. So again, I can't stress this enough. You can't just like blindly give a patient fluid for a lactic acidosis. I see this all the time. You have to figure out why they have a lactic acidosis. You have to go down that rabbit hole. If there's something in the lung, you got to treat that. If it's something where they're super anemic, you have to treat that. If it's a decreased effect of arterial volume, like they're in shock, you obviously have to give them pressors or inotropes. And if they're on, if they're septic, you have to give them antibiotics. So figuring out the reason why they have a lactate bump is extremely important to just blindly fluid resuscitate them without knowing why. The next thing, and that's like a big pet peeve of mine, Rob. (laughs) (laughs) But the next thing is toxic ingestions. Again, thinking about the particular toxins, there is a lot of ones that we mentioned there. You can think about methanol, ethylene glycol, propylene glycol. You even have like isoniazid and all these other ones that you can go through. Um, A lot of the times it's really thinking about these. Maybe they need hemodialysis for those to clear those off. Sometimes if you're early enough, you can consider things like charcoal and like, I don't know. I think they like methylene and ethylene glycol. You can try things like fomepazole sometimes too, but oftentimes I would just say dialysis if you're if you're a little bit later in that spectrum. And the last thing is again going through these patients who have a severe metabolic acidosis where their pH is less than like 7.2. Some uh, literature will say less than 7.15. Can you give them IV sodium bicarb? The really the, the literature shows that the only con- situation where this actually is beneficial is uremic metabolic acidosis has not been shown to be effective and diabetic ketoacidosis has not been shown to be effective in the lactic acidosis. So I would actually just pretty much stick with those and figure out the reason for the underlying disorders for the other ones. All right, engineers. The next one, though. Oh, shoot. <laughs> I thought you were done. <laughs> 
Yeah, so when we talk about the treatment of DAGMAs, it's important to remember that reducing or modifying or maybe even just getting rid of that TPN content because that's going to cause that hyperkalemia, drop the bicarb, and drop the pH. I would consider trying to avoid TPN at all costs. Um, it's just not a good thing. But sometimes if you have to, you got to do what you got to do. The other thing is if you have a patient who's on normal saline infusions or they're getting tons of hypertonic saline and you can adequately fluid resuscitate them without any other contraindications, I would consider switching to more of a balanced crystalloid. So if they're really getting hyperkalemic, and they're actually you know, experiencing an acidosis now because of that, I would switch over to like something like lactated ringers or plasma light, more of a balanced crystalloid. The other thing is if somebody has a kind of a renal tubular acidosis, you can actually consider treating these patients with bicarb and it might be helpful, but also treating the underlying disease. So do they have like a hypoaldosteronism? If they do have a decrease in their aldosterone, you got to figure out why and treat that underlying cause. The next thing is, do they have diarrhea? Remember, if they're diarrhea, they're blasting bicarb out. When you blast bicarb out, that actually, again, is going to decrease the base within the blood. And again, that's going to cause the pH to drop. So potentially treating the diarrhea with giving them fluid back, because if they are losing a lot of fluid with diarrhea, they're peeing out their butthole, give them some of that fluid that they're peeing out. The other thing is potentially trying to stop the diarrhea as long as there's no infectious cause of it. If they have gastroenteritis, please don't do that. Give them Imodium if they don't have an infectious etiology, because then you're just getting rid of a way of them clearing that infection. So again, treat diarrhea with fluid resuscitation and potentially Imodium as long as there's no infectious source. And then if they have acetazolamide that's causing them to just pee out lots of bicarb, consider getting rid of that or decreasing the dose. And the next thing is if they have that severe metabolic acidosis as a nagma as the cause and the pH is less than 7.2, you can consider IV sodium bicarb in these particular situations. So Rob, that definitely covers now, finally, all the treatments of acidosis. And dude, we just finished our entire series on acid-based disorders. How do you think? We did, my man. Amazing. Five parts here. That was a ton of information. I don't know how you put it all in your head, but you did it. We got it done, baby. I'm super glad we got this done. I think this is a good foundational concept that those of you guys who are out there listening, I think you have to know, man. All right, Ninja Nerd fam. I'm repeating the same thing, but like all of these... Every acid-based disorder, if you know the cause, you can really know the treatment. For this one in particular, just remember those mnemonics we talked about, okay? Mud piles for your agma. You can also remember that cult or hard up for your nagma. Don't forget those. You might be able to remember that and then know the treatment for it. But anyway, we covered a ton in this podcast. Please, guys, please consider going on our website, ninjaner.org, signing up, becoming a member, getting your notes, illustrations, everything you need, okay? Otherwise, Zach... We did it. We're moving on. How do you feel? I think we did a great job with these acid-based disorders. Um, I really hope that you guys enjoy them. I hope that you guys learn a lot and it makes sense. Um, definitely, I, I agree with Rob. I really, really think you guys should go to our website, download those notes and illustrations and follow along with us because I really think it's going to provide some pieces that may be missing that we didn't go into a ton of detail on in the podcast, even though it seems crazy. But um, I hope all this stuff made sense. I hope that you guys enjoyed it. And engineers, as always, until next time.